Hey, how's it going, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we usually share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. You know, for the last few months... Uh, our podcast has been in this really exciting new chapter. We've been exploring different kinds of episodes, new formats, new segments, trying to have more connection with our Marcado fam, as we like to call them, as well as our real fam. You know, Marty's been involved in a lot of these episodes. And uh, today's episode was actually, I think, one of the very first ideas that Carl and I had That's when true. we were sort of conceiving this next era. And this is going to be an ongoing series, Composer Tips. That's right. These episodes are going to be exploring what it means to be a composer. And I find as a composer, it's really helpful to get information from a wide variety of sources and hearing everyone's process, which inevitably is a little different. It's always so interesting because everyone approaches it differently. And the one thing I did want to say also, today's episode is, I think, a little bit more educational and informational than might be usual for our podcast. I think even if you're not a composer, if you're a fan of music, I my hope is that everyone listening is going to uh, enjoy this episode and get some interesting insight and information from it. So even if you're not a composer, I hope you will enjoy today. Yeah, and I think that we have hopefully a nice balance here today, as well mm-hmm. as a, a really fun idea that we have for later on, which is going to be an essentially unedited documentation of the entire compositional process from the birth of an idea to its final execution, yes. which I think my main goal for why I even wanted to do these episodes in the first place For young composers or for people who want to get into music, sometimes it can seem really daunting when you look at the work of someone you really respect or, you know, if their music sounds really polished or well orchestrated, if it's that kind of thing or just colorful and fun. Maybe it has it's a song with great lyrics and there's all this, you know, polish. It can be intimidating and think like, I don't even know where to begin. But I think uh, having some insight into what a tiny baby step the first step really needs to be. Right. I think people have this idea that you need to be hit with a lightning bolt of divine inspiration every single time. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, hopefully we'll be able to kind of lift the curtain a little bit for some of you. The last thing I I did want to mention, so I will be doing a segment later on. Will has a segment as well. And then we also have a fun chat with composer, arranger, trumpeter, Tyler Muir. So look forward to that as a little bit of an intermission. So that's another perfect thing that we timed for today. Tyler's an awesome composer, arranger. You guys have probably heard his big band VGM arrangements. We actually played his Hydrocity big band arrangement, I think, last year. So that'll be a nice change of pace today too yeah i'm really excited about that because i remember that arrangement just uh really blowing both of us away absolutely so the first thing that we're going to do today is carl and i have each prepared several um tips just kind of general rules of thumb or pearls of wisdom i guess if you will (laughs) that each of us have sort of learned in our own way through the process of composition the one thing i just want to say before any of this is all of these are just our opinions these are entirely subjective i think carl and i and marty as well um between us have i think a tremendous amount of experience writing music in different genres and playing in different styles but 
obviously music is a completely subjective personal thing and every composer's approach to it is completely different. And that's one of the beautiful things. So we are trying to be as genuine and transparent as possible by these are, these are things that we have learned that have made our lives easier and have helped us to, in our opinion, write better music. We are not saying that these are the only way to do things or that, you know, we know more than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, I think just tips that definitely work for us and, and we hope will work for other people as well. So um, I'll start off with my first tip that I thought of. Uh, this is something I think about a lot. And there's so many different ways to start a composition, but one of my tips that some people might not think of intuitively is I think it's a good idea to think and maybe even plot out a possible form and structure for your piece of music as early as possible, whether or not it's the first thing you do or the third thing you do, think about the structure early on. Uh, I've done it before where it's the first thing I do before I write down anything else. And at some point, having a roadmap of what where you're going to go with your piece and the limitations that uh, that you want to set on yourself, sometimes that sends you on your way, and it really does help to overcome that blank page overwhelming feeling that a lot of us creative people have when we're sitting down at a piano. Sometimes we don't know what to do. So sometimes having a structure or a set of limitations at the onset can really help with that. And you can do the same thing for instrumentation or an ensemble. You can say, all right, what if I made a piece for these four instruments? And that's already a limitation in and of itself. Right. And sometimes having that ensemble is really going to dictate what kind of piece you can write. Completely. Yeah. I think that setting limitations in general is ironically a very useful tool to get ideas flowing because part of what um, inhibits... uh, artists is that idea of the sky is the limit and if the composer Mm -hmm. example is okay load up massive or some giant synth and you have thousands of patches or omnisphere or something like that you can just spend all day picking through sound that can be a full day that's why i think when you artificially uh, or sometimes the constraints are given to you, like in the case of many of the early video game composers, mm-hmm. um, that can actually be a real blessing because you know, okay, well, I know I'm not going to have a glockenspiel. I know right. I'm not going to have, you know, a distorted guitar. If you're able to narrow down right. your ideas. And um, I think, you know, there's a lot of artists that would do that subconsciously. Like you take the Beatles, for example, a lot of times when they wrote a song, they're just so used to knowing how pop songs work that, oh, oh, big shock, it's going to be in the standard form and it's going to be a certain number of bars that's really logical. And even if they're not thinking about it, they they might not be thinking, oh, I think I want to make this verse eight bars. You know, it's like they just had such a good natural sense of structure right. that it, it was really, I think, a helpful tool for them to know that. Well, and that's why when they were able to break the rules and have so many of those, you know, oh, there's this weird... Three four measure in the mix, and then it goes back to four, right. or it'll just completely metrically modulate or it's something. It's just something to be conscious of. Yeah, and I, going back to the idea of form, you know, that's something that for centuries composers have. I think a lot of people think of form as a set of rules yep. 
because a lot of us learn it that way in school when you learn sonata form as like these are the rules the you know a theme must be presented like this and then the b theme must be in this key region and there are so many things but they're less rules and they're more I think it's more like a building it's like buying a house and like what can you do to decorate this you know this house but it does have a set of walls yeah it's more observations and often form is a tool for composers to be able to generate material like carl was saying that it's like if you kind of have a roadmap where you know where you're going you don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel every few seconds it's true well will what what's your first tip of the day here so my first tip is to consider momentum i think it's always important to consider the momentum established by your groove melody or counter lines of a composition in many cases uh when you establish a subdivision you know eighth notes 16th notes it could be you know triplets or something like that uh, but when you establish a subdivision it sounds more natural and satisfying to maintain that subdivision even if totally. it's trading off between elements conversely i think sometimes having moments of silence or pause can be really effective if you want to have that sensation of the momentum stopping right. or you can create this really cool effect of implying the momentum in the listener's ear because they sort of feel the implied mm. pulses when you've established that i love that idea but that's something that i learned from studying the music of john williams so much of his music will have this little motor inside of it some little moving <laughs> idea so true. and you notice and whatever it is 32nd note 16th notes you'll notice it's like oh this little motor never stops yeah. and not that it's in one instrument the whole time and just it's just the rhythm of it but i do think there's something that once you establish it's kind of like having drums in a song yeah. Once you establish some sort of rhythmic continuity, you really don't want to break the groove. You have to be careful. And you, at the very least, you have to be conscious of it. Like when you want the drums to cut out or change, if you just do that willy nilly, it's going to have huge repercussions, right? So you really have to be aware of, of that. And I love your idea because whether or not you want a certain momentum to carry over the entire song or if you you know, can have times when it changes or it drops and it picks back up. It's definitely something to be aware of. Yeah. And I think momentum in general is something that music is great at describing because it occurs through time. Mm -hmm. It's hard for a painting to communicate momentum. There's ways that artists do try to capture abstract concepts like that. But since music occurs in time, we can really articulate things that have to do with the building and release of energy. Right. And I think momentum is a great way, you know, in classical music a lot, uh, it's common for there to be all these dynamic tempo shifts and accelerando, retardando, all that sort of thing. And a lot of the music that we tend to listen to now is um, tends to be more groove based, which often right. means that it's to a more specific grid or locked tempo. But I still think the concept of momentum has more to do with building energy than explicitly how fast something is. And so yeah. I also think that it's like, if you think of the music metaphorically as like a real world object, if something is moving at a speed, you know, let's say a train is barreling down really fast. Well, you stop the engines, the train's still going to move on its own for right. quite a while. And so when you establish musical momentum, you also have to consider similar forces. If you want to stop it abruptly, you kind of need to prepare that with a 
a lot of energy. Yeah. And if you want to make a left turn, depending on how big or how energetic your music is, you might need to make different considerations. I know that sounds abstract, but I seriously, next time you're working on something, I think consider momentum. Yeah, it's, I think it's something that I think about even sometimes subconsciously. So whether or not you have that word, uh, think about the idea for sure. So my second tip, I really only prepared two today. Same. Uh, my second tip is don't be precious with any single idea that you have when you're writing. And definitely don't be afraid to change or improve or refine or whittle something, anything. It's really easy to get used to something. This happens in mixing too, just because you're hearing it over and over again or playing it repeatedly. It's so easy to accept that as, okay, this is what this part sounds like. Let me move on to another part. But don't be afraid to really question and and just be aware of everything that you're doing and can you refine it. Sometimes... I consciously try to beat an idea. It's almost like a comedian who's like has a joke and can I can I beat this joke? Can I make this better? Another thing is uh, that relates to this is I think it's really helpful to use time away, whether it's a night's sleep or a few hours in the afternoon away. Use that time away to help give you a more objective ear so that when you're coming back to something hours later, uh, sometimes that can really help pinpoint possible areas that maybe aren't as good or as refined as they could be. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, because I think there is this <laughs> idea that maybe some non-composers have is that composing is this magic thing that is just this divine spark where it just comes and hits you. And yes, every composer will tell you there are magical moments where that happens. But Will, you would agree with me, 95% of the time, it's just work. It's just sitting down and doing the work and putting the time into it. And your first idea might be really awful. But if you stick with it, and don't give up and keep working away and whittling away. Eventually, you're going to get to something good. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always struggled at any sort of reductive means of looking at music. So when people try to say something mm -hmm. like music is just math or music is just a series of choices, I always have that part of me that cringes a little bit <laughs> because I'm it's like, more than yeah, any it's one more thing, than yeah. just that. But at the same to the same token, it's like it's more than just divine inspiration. It's more than just craft. It's yeah. more than just art. It's it's complicated. Um, but I, definitely the craft side of it in the amount that any one person can achieve personal growth through just hard work and effort. I think it's possible with music in a way that it really isn't mm -hmm. with a lot of things in life. I think especially composition, it kind of gives you the most latitude um, in terms of any sort of creative pursuit because it's not performing. It's not execution. You have all the time. I mean, in practical situations uh, for professionals, you don't necessarily have all the time in the world. But in theory, you have as much time as you need to make sure it sounds good. So it doesn't matter if you're a great pianist or you're a lousy pianist or, you know, it, it's like if you're willing to put the time right. and effort to put this little machine together ultimately the end result is all that matters. And I think that's what initially attracted me to composition in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and I think that's what attracted us to an episode like this is thinking about the craft and the work that goes into it. I think there's a lot of people that sit there and 
are going to wait for this divine inspiration. And I think when you do that, you might end up waiting forever, (laughs) you know? Uh, So yeah, I guess that goes hand in hand is don't wait for anything like that to happen. Just, just sit down and get to work and those things will inevitably happen. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very consistent piece of advice that I've gotten from almost every single professional composer I've encountered. (laughs) And I think while it's maybe not the entire story to say that composing is just work and there are no good ideas and bad ideas, it's just how you refine it. I don't totally agree with that because like like you were sort of hinting at earlier, there are those genuinely spiritual, incredible moments of awe where it's like something oh, special yeah. comes together. And and there are times when you're doing the quote work, but it just comes really quickly and really, really easily. Yeah. And then there are times when you just can't get anything good after, you know, two hours. So depends. I think every composer is different. And so I, it's, it's less about um, that this is how something has to be done, but just more like th- this is an option. Like if, right. if you're someone who has such a, you know, um, prodigy level gift and you're just someone who music just oozes out of you, maybe you don't need to worry about being precious or not being precious, but to <laughs> someone who feels like, Oh, I just always have writer's block and I can never think of anything. I think the idea of taking the pressure off of yourself that these ideas have to be good in the first place and just getting mm-hmm. something down because I think, it, yeah. you know, writing is rewriting. Um, yeah, no. And there's an element of it that reminds me of being in college and writing an essay. I remember that feeling of looking at Microsoft Word and being like, oh, how can I even start? But once you start, I mean, that's definitely the hardest part and it snowballs from there. Uh, so, Will, what is your second tip that you uh, thought of today? Yeah, I think I definitely need some advice on the how to not procrastinate and get to work <laughs> when you have to, because, gosh, the that is something it's hard, man. I, I still struggle with. Yeah, my second tip is has to do with, you know, when you're arranging or orchestrating a piece of music, and that is to think of the general colors or sounds that you want for each line rather than one mm-hmm. specific instrument. What I mean is sure. I think it's... It's very common for composers to, uh, when they're composing a piece of music, they think like, oh, I want the melody to be a cello. And then, oh, I want this line to be the violins. And this is an oboe here. And I think also people think that, look at all these instruments in the orchestra. I need to write for every single one of them. And they each need to have something completely different to do. Where when you actually look at the majority of orchestral repertoire, regardless of the sort of Wagnerian romantic size or not, quite often you can um, simplify the music down to... Uh, you know, three or sometimes fewer ideas, not necessarily notes, but, you know, you can notice that it's not necessarily like everyone is in their own doing something something completely different. It won't sound very good. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's only natural in an orchestra, I think, to consider doubling. So I think people who write for the orchestra, I think, are more familiar generally with the idea of, you know, the if the first violins have the melody, we'll double it with flute, or maybe with mm-hmm. clarinet, or maybe with oboe, or maybe with flute and oboe, or maybe with flute and oboe in octave pairs. Um, I mean, yeah. there's so many different kinds of combinations. Um, I mean, in I think that's really the 
the big secret to orchestration. But I think my main tip comes for, you know, if you're realizing an idea, whether it's at the piano or on any instrument of your choice, or maybe you just compose in your own head or at a DAW, um, I understand there are different ways of doing this, but I think I would encourage you to try to consider the sound you want in in abstract mm-hmm. rather than pinpointing it down to oh an oboe or oh a square wave like just think about h- how you would describe the tone if it's a lyrical right. sounding melody do you want something soft is it mellow and warm? or is it yeah. plucky do you want something even, even buzzy like is it exciting yeah 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 i think that's a really good idea the color the vibe and i think it applies to electronic music almost more so than orchestral oh, totally because there's yeah what's amazing about electronic music is when it comes to the tools there's kind of like this infinite never-ending well of ways to create it yet when it comes to the basic building blocks well, that's why it's almost more important that you have that color in your head, right? Otherwise, like you said, you're going to be spending four hours going through patches. Well, right. But the other the other side to that coin is with electronic music, your basic building blocks really only come down to a handful of options. Yeah. You know, a sine wave, Isn't a saw crazy? wave, a square wave, a triangle wave, and white noise. And with those combinations, different versions of those... That's pretty much every single synthesizer. That's every electronic right. sound. I mean, other than sampling acoustic things and processing them. But mm-hmm. eventually that reaches a point where the something that I've learned, you know, in my grad program is just really how malleable sound is and how you can almost take any sound and turn it into any other sound. If mm-hmm. you have the right tools and the right concept behind it, you know, you can make... Uh, a sine wave out of any audio recording if you just boost the EQ of one frequency and roll off everything else and you replicate that process so many times, eventually you'll end up with just that one frequency. I mean, essentially that's how oscillators and filters and things like that work. Right. Yeah. Often we don't think about sound in that primal way of like what kind of general adjective would I give to the timbre that I want and we jump to the end conclusion too quickly it's something that we deal with a lot when we're dealing with clients and devs is is having that conversation too I'm excited in future composer tips episodes uh, to give some other tips too I'm excited uh, to ask some other composers for tips it'd be fun next time to have a segment where we have maybe one tip from a handful of different composers That, that would be really cool uh, so, yeah, I'm excited for both of our segments today. I believe that Will's segment and my segment are going to pair really well and contrast each other really well. Will's segment, which we're going to move to now, is a little more theoretical, I think, than mine, and I think is going to be the perfect thing to move to before we have that intermission chat. So, Will, let's just hand it over to you, and you can just explain what you're going to be talking about right now. So, today I'm going to talk about melody. In many ways, it's the most accessible aspect of music because you don't really need anything more than your own voice. You may have noticed over the years, Carl and I enjoy music that's catchy. While our own personal tastes may vary from composer to composer or soundtrack to soundtrack, the thing that's always united us is our firm belief in the importance of melody in video game music. Most of the music we celebrate on this show is highly tuneful, and that was important to us from the very beginning. We would argue that many of these melodies are part of gaming's greatest contribution to the larger culture. 
Lately, media music has trended towards aggressive minimalism in sound design over conventional tunes and melodies. If you listen to our show much, you probably already know where Carl, Marty, and I stand on this topic. For the purpose of today's episode, though, I would rather discuss some of the joys and mysteries and general observations I've made about melodies and leave the subject of trends in film, TV, and game music for another time. Now, just to clarify, often when we say melody, we're specifically thinking of something akin to the lead vocal of a song. It might be more accurate to distinguish between a tune and a melody, because there are certainly plenty of melodies that are not tuneful or song-like. I think for our purposes here, it's actually a good place to start, so I will use the terms interchangeably. One of the things that I've always found most charming about retro game music is how much everything feels like a song. It's not an accident that when restricted to the elemental sound hardware of the early consoles, we got these charming little electronic pop songs. Melodies were an integral part of the branding and iconography of the games, as well as a sort of fight song for the players themselves. Like the early consoles, our human hardware is similarly limited. Since we can only reproduce a single tone at a time, we gravitate towards clear, monophonic lines, because in some sense, they're reflections of our own humanity, and perhaps we empathize with them as we might a figure of a person in a drawing or painting. As a tune may rise and fall, sweep, soar, or stagnate, we feel sympathetic emotional changes in our own bodies. That's why the practice of tone painting is so common in music. Think of all the soaring and leaping intervals used by composers whenever depicting flight, or the spindly, conniving, chromatic lines we hear to describe untrustworthy characters or dangerous situations. Personally, I've never been particularly satisfied by the quote rules for melodic construction as presented by most classical music theory or counterpoint texts, and I think that's because ultimately each rule has so many exceptions in practice that they simply aren't that helpful in reality. Often you hear things like, have one single high point and low point, or after a leap of this interval you should always follow it with stepwise motion in this or that direction. Because there are so many different styles and dialects musically, there is no one set of compositional rules that encompasses everything, and I have no desire to box in something as complex and varied as melody. Since I can only speak for myself, I'll just point to things that I've found effective when the goal is trying to make something memorable, pleasing, or catchy, which is almost always what I'm attempting. I think the most important parts of a melody are the shape and the form. Shape, in this case, refers to the particular contour of how it rises and falls. I aim for a melodic shape that is immediately recognizable, even if the specific notes or rhythms are altered. Take any famous John Williams film theme and you'll notice what I'm talking about. The exact pitches matter, of course, but the shape is so recognizable. You can change it from major to minor, modally, chromatically alter the phrase, and it still feels like one common entity. I find that having some sort of large leap, whether ascending or descending, is very useful in defining the shape of a melodic line, especially if that leap gets repeated. Knowing when to repeat an idea versus when to change to something new can be the difference between predictably boring and something so satisfying it gives you chills. Thinking about things like symmetry and asymmetry within a melody can help to make a disjointed phrase feel sensible or a predictable phrase feel fresh. 
Melodies that are symmetrical pay off exactly what they set up, whereas asymmetrical melodies are more likely to surprise us. Most music requires a balance of both symmetry and asymmetry, and you'll often find an asymmetrical phrase that gets repeated, making it symmetrical, or a symmetrical phrase becoming contorted or developed in a way that obscures its symmetry. While shape and form is important, we can't forget the importance of the notes themselves. I like to treat the opening few notes of a tune as a sort of doorbell or ringtone that summarizes the entire song. Finding ways to grab the listener's attention with a colorful sequence of notes right at the start can go a long way. Sometimes when you analyze a piece of music, you might find that the entire tune and all its sections are derivations of the first few notes or opening phrase. Often these short little melodic cells are called motifs. Some melodies are both motivic and tuneful, meaning that they're built from simple cells, but also hold together as a long line, like a song. Much of the great film themes are this way, because they needed to be identifiable in a few notes, as well as be part of a larger tune that could play fully when there's enough runway to do so. A common criticism I have of a lot of melodies I hear is that there are way more notes than there need to be. Some people must think that having more notes gives off a sense of sophistication or an effortless improvisational feeling, and that's sometimes the case. Often, however, it leaves the melody feeling messy and it communicates with less clarity, which in turn can make it less memorable and less effective. Encourage yourself to use an economy of notes. I think the sweet spot is actually much closer to annoyingly simple than annoyingly complex. Don't forget the value of pauses and sustained notes either. The use of contrast, like in most art forms, is a good rule of thumb. Following fast lines with something long and sustained, or something short and aggressive with something lyrical and sweet. Sometimes a melody may feel too simple, but if you bring complexity to it with the harmonies, you can achieve a level of depth that isn't there from an actually complex melody. Sometimes I like the melody to almost ignore the chords at certain points, so it has its own direction and sets up moments of unique dissonance that aren't too harsh. I also think it's important to pay close attention to the ends of phrases. Often they're the hardest to get right. Much like the finale episode of a beloved TV show or movie, you want to have the sense that it was all leading to something satisfying. When I'm writing songs, often I'll have the title of the song first because I know it might help me to come up with the final phrase. The last phrase, like the first one, has the job of telling you what the song is about. Both musically and lyrically, if it's a song, these phrases act as kind of the covers of the book as well as the logline of the story. Writing memorable melodies is very hard, and often the parts that feel the most effortless are the parts that required the most time and precision to achieve. Supposedly Bach would spend more time composing his fugue subjects than all of the complex counterpoint. We also know Koji Kondo has a tradition of singing his melodies out loud, and if he tires of one or he can't remember one the next day, it simply wasn't catchy enough and he moves on. 
John Williams has even remarked about how he spends a great deal of time tweaking and refining his basic melodic elements before even thinking about another aspect of the music. As listeners, we often make the mistake of thinking that complex to listen to is complex to create, and therefore simple to listen to must be simple to create. Most composers I've spoken to who've been tasked with writing simple direct melodies agree that the opposite is in fact the case. It takes more time, attention, and effort to craft something that feels familiar and inevitable than the most elaborate harmonic architecture or rhythmic complexity. There's certainly more that can and should be said about melody, but I hope that for now, this little essay of sorts encourages more active listening in music you consume. To any composers out there, I hope you'll consider things like shape, form, symmetry, an economy of notes, and the value of a commanding opening and closing phrase in your own writing. Thanks for indulging me today. Good luck and happy composing. I'll hand things over to Carl now, and when we come back, he'll be joined by a very special guest. All right, everyone, it's time for an intermission chat. I'm excited today to be joined by someone that many of you listening are probably familiar with, multi-talented arranger, composer, trumpeter, Tyler Meir. Tyler, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. We've been kind of floating around in each other's orbit for for many years, but it's nice to finally connect. Uh, We thought today's episode was perfect. This composer tips episode talking so much about composition. We thought, hey, you know, Tyler's a perfect person to add some different insight into today's episode. So I look forward to it. Yeah, let's get to it. Hopefully I can say something helpful. (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely going to get into composing. um, But one thing that I think would be fun to change this episode up here is to start with arranging. I do think that there are many folks out there that don't exactly know what arranging is, what goes into it, especially compared to composing. I think it can be a bit of a mysterious and misunderstood art. So in case there are any of those folks listening, can you shed some light on arranging and talk about your experience as an arranger? Yeah, arranging is a, is like a pretty specific skill set of the composer. Like there's composers mm-hmm. and there's arrangers, and there's definitely people who do both. I consider myself both a composer and an arranger. Right. But I really feel like the arranging scene has really flourished in the last few years, especially with the amount of really great arranging you hear on YouTube with VGM musicians. Um, yeah. They're, um, Sometimes they win Grammys, which is kind of fun. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> to the Big Big Band. Um, yeah. Huge, huge. Um, but, um, yeah, what, uh, you know, some people say covers, and cover is like kind of a different thing than like an arrangement. Arrangement's where you sort of you take the melody, maybe the spirit of the tune, and you recontextualize it. Maybe you, t- you keep the melody intact, but you change the harmony underneath it. Or maybe you mm-hmm. change the groove, or you say, okay, we're going to do, you know, the Super Mario Brothers overworld theme but that we're going to do it as a klezmer or we're going to do it as a third wave ska tune so you just kind of present it you have this element of the tune that people know that they can latch on it's like they're anchored to compare <laughs> your creativity as an arranger to see what they changed and um it's it's really actually kind of fun and being an arranger because i remember my composition teacher used to always say like you know being a composer is great but sometimes when people hear your music they don't have a frame of reference to see your creative choices. Mm. But when you're an arranger, they can they really have that anchor. They if they know yeah. the original tune, if they know the original tune's harmony or orchestration or even just the melody, right. they can be like, "Oh, 
I love this melody. That was cool how the arranger, you know, did it this way. Or I like those harmonic choices. Or maybe they don't even have the vocabulary to describe that. They're just like, oh, that's really cool. I never thought I could hear that tune as a disco or whatever. You know? Yeah, it's so almost like they're enjoying the music on a different level. That's just not possible if they don't know the source material. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's like a challenge as being a composer is like, you know, people going in without context. Of course, you mm-hmm. know, there's programmatic music and... You can kind of preempt them with some information about your piece, and that can help kind of guide their ears. But yeah, I think arranging is like a special art form in which there's like a there's just some connection that the the listener brings to your piece because it's a piece of music they've uh, probably heard before. If it's something they're seeking out on YouTube or whatever, they probably are. Oh, I love the music of you know Sonic the Hedgehog, Green Hill right. Zone, you know. Um, so I think being an arranger is a lot of fun in that respect. Yeah, it's it seems like you <laughs> particularly have a lot of fun with it. And and I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite things about it? And I, I actually had a question, too. How do you approach jazz arranging VGM, or do you at all, differently than when you're arranging non-VGM jazz? Um, well, that's a great question, actually. You know, I mean, I feel like the, the craft and the fundamentals are the same across everything. Right. Everything, you know, when you start a project, it's all about, you know, what what is your vision for what you want the piece to sound like, and then you just kind of use your craft to serve the art. I mean, I guess if I had to pinpoint a specific sort of aesthetically different approach I would take with, say, my more VGM arrangements as opposed to, you know, maybe work for hire or stuff I've done on my um, self-titled albums on the Tyler Mary Big Band, I would say that with the VGM stuff, I definitely, tr- I, I definitely try to keep the music a little bit more... Um, closer to the spirit of the original than maybe I would take mm. if, say, I was arranging like a standard from the jazz canon that has existed right. for 100 years. So I guess a great example is like if I was arranging Stella by Starlight, Yep, that tune has been performed on a million jam sessions that has been arranged by a million arrangers. So there's a lot of leeway. In which so it doesn't you... need to be as faithful maybe, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, it's so devoid of its original context. I think if you even quiz like, 90% of jazz musicians say, hey, where did Stella by Starlight come from? They probably right. couldn't even tell you the movie. I can't remember the movie. I just know that it's about a ghost. <laughs> yeah. I guess my point being is that some of these VGM stuff, they're so context dependent. So, you know, you have to honor that. And, you know, and so I always keep that in mind is like, I want to show my creativity as a ranger, but I also want to honor the original tune. And um, so find that sweet spot between like purely recreating it with live instruments or arranging it. But still in a way where like the melody is king, the melody is recognizable, that the right. people who like have fond memories and emotions with that with that melody, they can still get that while still bringing in the great stuff of jazz, which is the improvisational elements. Um, and some VGM translates better to the more improvisational side than others. But I, that's the stuff I love about jazz arranging is that this is a spectrum of composed specificity and improvise improvised parts and like at all times you're just swinging between the two pendulums how much do you want of either and uh i really love that as an arranger like sometimes you like are very specific in what you want and then sometimes you just write some chords and have a soloist and you tell them to go and then they create the they they are like the arrangers at that part absolutely um, yeah and and i think that your your vgm jazz arrangements really strike a great balance of that and one thing that i love about them is that 
the level of taste, I know this stuff is subjective, but it, it seems to me like you're not making a change just to make a change. Uh, like you're trying to say something, but you're trying to do something special with it uh, at all times. And so that's something I really appreciate about them. Right. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think if I had any only, my own self critique of my own music sometimes, it's like, you know, there, there are people who maybe overwrite. I think sometimes I underwrite. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I just. Uh, I don't know if that's just uh, a taste thing or if I'm just lazy. I haven't, the verdict's still out on that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do try to be really economic with my ideas, like not to use any more than I need and to really like, yep. you know, like uh, use as much of that source m- melodies as possible. Because that's really, I feel, barring like more more atmospheric music, which has a great place in, in media music, of course, too. But like the melodies that we love... I think those are like, I really want to honor that and weave those throughout the piece as much as possible. Absolutely. And speaking of that, I wanted to give a shout out to your album, Critical Hits, which I believe you just dropped recently. Uh, I know that you have been working on those tunes uh, for quite a long time. First of all, it's absolutely fantastic. And for those listening that haven't heard it yet, can you share a little bit about the making of of Critical Hits and maybe some of the biggest challenges that you had? making it yeah sure um so critical hits is my fourth big band record i had three under my own name with under the tyler big band which was 99 percent original music with an arrangement here or there right uh, when covid hit you know i i've been a doing game audio for the last nine years mm-hmm. um, a couple of my clients had expressed interest in either getting a band into the studio and doing stuff like that but when covid kind of hit you know obviously that wasn't an option so a few clients like had uh, actually our friend, our mutual friend Aaron, um, yeah, say, hey, can we get a saxophone on this track? And I hired Aaron, and I was like, wait, this is kind of cool. Like I could like this remote thing. There's some possibilities here. And then um, yeah, then uh, then the same client, we ended up doing a uh, a full big band track. Actually, before that, we did like a, a like a rock band with four horns. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I'm digging this. And then he's like, well, let's go for the next. One. Let's go really big. Can you do a big? Keep band going. Track? <laughs> so I did a big band arrangement of the main theme of the game for this game called my familiar and that was sort of the the uh the seed i was like oh wait i should do a big band album <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and i should do all video now. game music <laughs> and so last year i uh i had this arrangement of seeker of the forest that i actually wrote i think in 2018 when i was still oh, a cool. member of the navy ba- navy big band in dc we played it there and i was like this would be great i'm gonna feature my friend brett on clarinet so i like rewrote it a little bit and i just started getting it recorded and, it, and i put it on youtube and i was like this is really cool i should do another one and then that's kind of how it went throughout the rest of the year i just wrote when i could got tracks recorded remotely and when i had enough tunes i was like wait this is enough for an album so then i yeah. said okay i'm just gonna put this album out there and see what happens did you ever get anything from someone where the the miking for various reasons the room the, some sort of noise where it was either unusable or you had to do a lot of tricks to get it to 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 kind of gel with everything else you know honestly i think that uh people are so savvy with remote recording i would say i really didn't have any problems i think maybe like maybe like on one track like the mic might have been a little close to the barry bell barry sax Mm -hmm. bell so it was like when they played like a low a it got like really loud but other than that like there was the people i worked with were, were people i knew from nashville you knew they were going to nail every happy. aspect of the performance. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> the Friends I had from North Texas, Aaron, you know. So, like, for the most part, I would say vast, vast majority, 99%. Every every stem I got was just solid gold. I think there might have been four bars of clarinet ensemble from my friend Howie, and it, like, got off the grid somehow, and we couldn't figure <laughs> out what was wrong with it. 
And so my wife, who plays clarinet, she was about to go to bed. I was like, hey, babe, can you just, like, record these four bars for me? So she's like, all right. And she pulled her clarinet, and she recorded it for me. I was like, I'm like, you're good, Howard. You don't need to re-record this. Oh, that's That awesome. was the only thing I could think of. Um, yeah, I mean, I got really lucky. I mean, you know, they're a little, like... I was learning this as, along with them, too, but I would say, for the most part, it was pretty uh, hiccup-free. I was really pleasantly surprised, and I think we were able to get a really nice-sounding album. I, yeah, you, you know, were. I don't know, like, if people heard it not knowing it was completely done remotely, if they would be able to pick up that on that, I think... That would be think... a very cool question to ask. You should do... You should focus group that <laughs> and get to the <laughs> well, I mean, answer, yeah. I know you probably agree with this, like, the, the jazz gains so much from being played live together like that's like yeah. a big part of what makes the music special to me like yeah when i did my last three records like all the solos were live we're all in the same room playing like that's really important to me obviously you can't do that with this mm-hmm. but since the music was a little bit more commercial in nature you could get away with some of that but like i do really do feel like not that we lost anything per se doing it remotely but being together there it's like a high risk high reward like obviously yeah. doing live solos has a lot of a lot of reward potential, but also has risk. Like if there are backgrounds, that's part of the creep. energy. Yeah, that risk. Yeah, you yeah. hear that. You hear that. Absolutely. Right. I agree. Like, like I remember um, on one of my albums, there was a uh, tenor solo, and he was killing it. And then the trumpets came in with their background, and they missed an entrance or cracked a note, <laughs> and they were like really protesting, like, "Oh, we got to fix this background." I'm like. Well, you're bleeding into the solo mic, so either we make him redo that phrase, or you just live with the fact that you cracked the background. <laughs> yeah. I like the solo so much, we're going to live with the fact that you just played that rhythm wrong. Because yeah. the solo is so good. To me, that's more important. Absolutely. Totally more important. <laughs> so I'm excited to move, uh, switch gears and talk about composing, because we're get, we're doing that so much today in this episode. So <laughs> this is a tough question, but what are... You, if you you can do some for each of these or just one, what are your favorite and least favorite parts of being a video game composer? Oh, see, favorite is probably just the the diversity of music you get to write. Like, yeah, uh, I love writing all like all different kinds of styles. I love learning like different types of grooves and different types of harmonic ballads. Like, that's really fun mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah, the diversity. I love that. Like, game game music just has the biggest audience potential like as someone who was like, a frustrated <laughs> big band composer for a decade yeah and i you know i had people who liked my music it's just hard like to connect with that if you're you know if, if it's associated with something concrete because music yeah. by itself is very abstract right so i always really enjoy that like and um you know i'm really grateful that a lot of the projects i do write for just have like spectacular art <laughs> and so you know i always joke that my music gets carried by the really great art but yeah that's those the diversity and just like the um the being attached to the storytelling like i really love that aspect Mm -hmm. of video game music i guess maybe least favorite would be i mean sometimes it's just like you know when you're scoring for big band you know all the instruments in a big band you know all the colors you know i know if i put these instruments together what it's going to sound like but sometimes when you're writing vgm it's like you just think in your mind like okay i'm hearing like this kind of wispy like ethereal choir synth thing like with a square wave and you're like okay now i gotta spend 40 minutes going through all my all my all uh, the samples and plugins <laughs> <laughs> so that part can be like because because video game music is not just like the notes you write it's very much like how the notes sound how the instruments yeah. sound it's a very important part of video game music history and so like that aspect can be like can slow my c- composing down because i'm thinking like as a producer like colors like so i'm like spending time finding the right sounds getting the right settings and stuff um so that part can slow me down it can be frustrating sometimes if i'm like just really in the zone to write um yeah 
Um, but templates definitely like as I like when I start a new project, I usually like spend the first week or two just thinking through like, okay, this game is going to have these 40 instruments. Let me just like make a thing and like think about all the sounds I would ever need for this. And I would just like make a template. Going to save you time later. Yeah. And then like when I start a new tune, I can just load that session file up and just kind of start from there and get going writing (laughs) instead of like thinking like I'm trying to find the like, uh, you know, the. I used to see the name of my presets. They're like wispy alien fart or something. Like <laughs> it only makes sense to me. <laughs> That's really all it has to make sense to, though. So another thing that I'm so curious about in terms of composition, you are someone who wears so many different hats in music as a performer and arranger, obviously a composer as well. Do you think that in music, wearing all of those hats is always good and beneficial? Or do you think there are ever times when you're composing where some of those other instincts, you know, a trumpeter, a jazz arranger instincts get in your way? And that's a great question. Wow. Um, I think it's probably mostly a net positive, I would have to say. Yeah. Because I always like, and this isn't something I came out with. My my great teacher, Rich DeRosa, told me this once, and it has really stuck with me. Like when you're composing for live musicians, like the job of the composer is to have empathy for your performers. Mm. And so like being a performer, a trumpet player, a musician that has played lots and lots of gigs myself, been around Mm -hmm. so many great musicians. I feel like that perspective of like, like obviously I don't play saxophone, I can't play drum set, but I've been around enough that I kind of understand how the instruments work and the pitfalls and the tendency. So like, I think having that empathetic feeling towards them and like, like you're not writing for the saxophone, you're writing for Aaron Hedstrom playing the saxophone. Yeah, like, so exactly. there's, do you know what I mean? Like there's things you got to think about, and I think that sort of like human connection has has made given me like while that may feel like limited, like you might say, well, I would have written this, but because I understand this, I might shy away from it. In a way, like right. um, limits make you creative. And problem solving, it always leads to deeper art. But um, totally, we talk about that all the time on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Limitations. I mean, it's, it's a great truism, right? It's so cliche at this point, but it's so yeah. true. I mean, uh, my friend Pat Hallman always talks about in game design, like you know, technical limitations lead to innovation, innovative styles, like the limits that a hardware has, or like a limit of a genre ends up becoming like an idiosyncratic, stylistic part of that whatever they're making. Like, so right. that's huge in art, and like technology and limits have like defined music history like period absolutely <laughs> like it's never been unlimited ever there's <laughs> limits now we just don't see them as clearly but like i mean just having the equal tempered piano <laughs> that's like <laughs> a huge technological thing that changed everything so our amplification you know there's a million things but yeah i think for the most part you know wearing all the hats can help i mean there are times in my career where i felt like people can only see you as one thing. And so, like, mm. you know, I was a pretty good trumpet player. I played, you know, lead trumpet in the uh, North Texas 1 o'clock band, and then I went and played in the Navy big band for five years. It's like, oh, Tyler's just a trumpet player, and he's a lead trumpet player, which means <laughs> that means he can't be a writer because lead trumpet players are, like, these blockheads that play high notes. And, or, like, you know, he couldn't improvise. So, like, you know, sometimes, like, people, when they view you, they can only, like, can have you be one thing in their mind right uh it's funny man when i was in nashville i remember a lot of people really only saw me in public conducting my big band i didn't play in my band i just stood up front and counted they didn't know you were a player (laughs) yeah and so when i won the navy job i remember someone coming up to me and said oh that's great are you going to be like the conductor of the navy band (laughs) i was like no (laughs) you don't want me holding the baton also just really condescending too 
So that was kind of funny. But yeah, I think uh, to your earlier question, I think it's a net positive for sure. That's awesome. So speaking of of you and your compositions, if someone out there listening is not familiar with your game compositions and they were going to check out one piece, one original piece of yours, which one would you direct them to and why? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to cheat and pick two, but for one big band... (laughs) They're, my favorite big band composition I've written it was on my second record, and it's called the song is called um, "Action Jackson and the Magical Disappearing Sock." It's <laughs> Love <about> my it. dog, <laughs> and it's on YouTube. Check that out. It's uh, one of my favorite originals. Um, I'm really, really proud of it, and the band just like sounds so good on it. Like it's like an incredible like kind of like a one in a million performance that we captured in the studio that's awesome um as far as vgm video game there's a game i'm writing for called my familiar and um this is on i think my soundcloud if you look up tyler mirror music mm-hmm. you probably find it um it's called um what do they even call this game? i think it's called a uh, molly Wapped. it's the boss theme for my familiar and it just like was this weird like fusion of all these things i like aaron's playing uh, aaron our friend aaron henstrom's playing tenor sax on it i'm playing like Carmen awesome. mute so we kind of like a brecker brothers thing but then like the rhythm sections like all like like kind of chip tuney sounding and and my friend Lindsay Miller's playing like wah wah guitar, so it's got this really cool like eclectic thing that only a video game would have these like weird uh, collisions of styles, and uh, that's probably my most favorite track I've produced for a game, just because it feels like so much like who I am as a composer, the stuff I like, but feels very like um, for lack of a better word, video gamey. Yeah, eclectic. It's kind of got that eclectic wild feeling to it. And uh, so, yeah, check that out. Well, Molly Watt is the name of the tune. So. Check both of those out. I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad that you gave those shout-outs. I can't wait to check them out personally myself. Well, Tyler, this was so fun. I'm glad we finally did this. I'm sure we'll have you back on a future episode, maybe just to, like, nerd out about a particular series or composer that, that you really like. If there was a topic, if, there, if we were going to do a podcast topic in the future to have you back, what would be some of the most, like, nerding out you, you could see yourself doing? <laughs> Oh, man, probably like JRPG music, honestly. (laughs) There we go. That's really what I love. (laughs) We'll have you back on for a Final Fantasy spotlight or something. (laughs) Yeah, please. Well, thanks again. Thanks for taking the time. This this was really fun to chat about arranging composition. This was a lot of fun, Carl. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Tyler for taking the time to come on our show. That was so much fun. Absolutely. I'm so excited for what we have next for you guys. Carl and I thought it would be really fun and interesting to just document the entire process of creating a song. And I thought that for our inaugural Composer Tips episode, I would love to hear the process of composing a Sonic-esque tune. So we had Carl (laughs) write a a Sonic-esque tune, record his real-time reactions and thoughts as the ideas are completely flowing. What you're about to hear was recorded uh, within 38 minutes. So it was entirely (laughs) done in a very short amount of time. It's been slightly edited, but for the most part, we didn't want to mess with any of this. So What you're going to hear is Carl's initial improvisations, randomly things coming to him, and you're going to hear that craft that we talked about. Carl talks you through some of the ideas, but I think for most of us, 
Uh, if you're anything like me, you'll probably just be amazed by how fast and how sharp he is at making decisions. And his, you know, you're listening to someone who has been doing this for a long time. So to those of you who are starting off, um, don't be intimidated if Carl is able to move through levels of the process faster than you would be able to. I think the thing that um, hopefully is most exciting is just seeing, um, honestly, some of the moments where you get stuck, some of the moments where you don't know what to do next, because I think we've all been in that situation. And I've had the uh, privilege to actually hear this and hear how it goes. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear the finished track that you came up with, because I think (laughs) it's great. So I hope you all enjoy. Let's take a listen. All right, so I am going to compose a fairly simple Sonic-esque tune. At least that's the plan. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, So I'm going to be going a lot faster than I typically would go just to show the entire process of composing a tune. Uh, So let's just go for it here. Usually one of the first things I do is choosing a key. Uh, let's Let's go with F minor for today. So there's a lot of different ways you can start composing a piece. Um, One of the most common ways that I start is with a chord progression. So let's just set some limitations on myself. Let's just have two main sections as far as the chords. Let's have uh, like a vamp, and then we could repeat those same chords over a verse melody, and then like a B section or a chorus. So I'm starting off in F minor, let's see. Just coming up with ideas. So I do this a lot. Sometimes if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think for today, probably start with a one minor seven. Quick descending to the flat seven, holding a little longer on the flat six major seven. So... Now, what I'm hearing, I, I do this a lot, but I'm I'm hearing it would be cool to then resolve to a minor 5, in this case a C minor 7. So I'm going to do that. I'm just going to go with my guts today. Okay, so at this point, instead of just repeating the same progression the second time, do something different. So the first time I went... Definitely want to do a different five at some point. Uh, what if I went down by half step? So the second time, maybe. Oops. Definitely major there, so to add some variety. So if the second time I did. Yeah, I'll probably do the augmented five, seven. So we'll see how that feels. Yeah. 
Okay, so I like that. So I'm going to roll with that. That's going to be the progression, the first progression. It can be for a vamp as well as uh, a verse melody. And then let's see where I would want to go for the, for the B section. So if I'm resolving on that, I mean, my gut, again, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. My gut is to go half step upward to the flat six, major seven. So I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> I mean, my next instinct is go. Let's see if I can break my instincts a little bit here. So it works really well to go flat six to seven, but what else can I do that would be cool? I don't want to go back to the one yet. I was just at the five. I mean, I could. I'm feeling like something a little, a little more different. Where else could I go? I could go to the, I don't want to go to the four. Could go to the three and then maybe oh yeah then if I went to the seven then I could oh yeah then I could harmonic minor my way up to the one so let's try that so if I do the six maybe like a an add six Let's go to the minor four, and maybe like a, you know, yeah, I like having that A flat on top this time, a little more spicy for like a final cadence maybe, and then like a riff. I think it'd be cool to have a riff to go back to the loop. So if we if we do cadence with a ba ba ba. -ba see what kind of riff would be cool um see i i feel like i would always do the raised third but what if i did the what if i just kept it minor pentatonic which could actually be a little spicy against the so if the riff kind of ignores that raised third that might be kind of cool so we're doing like a That's cool. So if we're going uh, before we're going. I like that riff. Okay. So we have. So that's that's the progression. I like it. Let's roll with it. The next thing I'm going to do uh, today is I'm going to compose a melody. Uh, there's a lot of different approaches, different tunes where I might do the bass line next. Uh, I'm going to do melody. So I was thinking that maybe for the beginning we could have a vamp and we could have like a simple riff that maybe doesn't feel as melodic as 
is the like the verse melody could so one way that i do that is if the riff is very based on the chords uh like more so than uh an interesting melody would be so so like yeah even if i outlined started by outlining the chords i like that ba -da -ba -da -ba. so then i'm going down So, ba -da -ba -da -ba. what can I do for that E flat? Ba bum bum, or no? Ba -da -ba -da -ba. Bum bum bum. Also, I think that that E flat can be a six, so that'll be cool. But anyway, um, ba -da -ba -da -ba. Ba -ba -ba. oh, that's cool. Ba -da -ba -da. Oh yeah, so that. That's a lot of repetition, but you're changing some of the notes to fit this chord, so I like that. And then something with something cooler. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Jimmy, just down the scale. Maybe back to the, or maybe back up the scale. Yeah, and that can be that can be the length of the riff. So let's try that. I think I like that. So if I have the riff in this range. One thing that I like to do to keep the energy moving from different sections is then if I move to a verse melody, I should have the verse start a little higher than the riff was. Something that works out, I think, for me. So. So, let's see. How can we start a melody? All right, verse melody. Instinct of starting on the nine. That's too sad. Oh, I think I'm going to start it on the 11. I think that's hip. I'm trying to come up with a good nugget to start it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Could be a little nugget. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Oh yeah, something like that. No. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Dun dun Or. Oh, that's cool. That's cooler. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Yeah, that's cool for the melody. If we did
hit on the seven bump bump but then the melody is going to start back on the same note bump 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 what if we went bump 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 so what if we went yeah that's cool getting back to it go up this time what if this time we go down the scale leads to the F if we don't go up what if we go back down this time I think we can hit two B flats because that would lead into the B section. Bum, bum, bum. In which case, I would want to start the B section melody on the A flat. I think I like that. Let's see what that feels. We have an A section, uh, B section. Actually, before I do the melody, I have an idea for the rhythmic pattern of the chords for the B section. That, that's going to be what I'll do for the rhythmic pattern of the chords. B section melody. Let's see. I really like that sending up. I like it because it starts with a half step and then a leap up. Let's see. So rhythmically, what am I Yeah. I think that would be a cool rhythm. So. Oh, going on to F is cool. Ooh, that's cool. Because you have another leap. That's kind of weird, but cool. So, so... 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, that feels really balanced. So we have... That's kind of I... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So we would have. up nicely First time. Uh, let's see. So for that first card, bam to bam ba dum ba da do bam. That may be interesting. So. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. And uh, now I chose a tempo that I was hearing. 170 feels right. So let's lay down the riff and then the A and B melody. Okay, and then the A. Let's lay down the chords for the vamp and the A. part
All right, for time here, I'm just going to come up with some base ideas for the vamp and the A section and uh, lay that down. Probably skip over showing the B section base. Let's see here. I like that leading down. Let's see. That's cool. Let's do a couple takes. Let's try one more. All right, so I'm going to come up with and then lay down the bass on the B section. So we have bass, melody, and chords. Let's come up with a little arpeggiated part. I think that's probably, other than the drums, the last element it really needs, at least for this simple song that I'm doing today. So if we have the chords, what could we do there? Yeah, I like that. So sometimes when I come up with little ostinatos or arpeggios, I like to... Um, I like to repeat notes as much as possible. So E flat is happening in almost all of the chords except for this one. So that can be a catchy device. And then I'm basically changing notes depending on the chords. But moving as little as possible. That's just one type of arpeggio. I could do something completely different. I could go. Maybe I'll do that like for the verse or something, but I think I like that for the, at least for the vamp. That's actually better. Yeah, that's actually cool. Let me lay that down, so. All right, let me just come up with and lay down at least part of the B section arpeggio for you guys. So that's a little bit of that arpeggio. 
Uh, next, I'm going to pick instruments. And then do the drum part. Quantize everything. Next, I'm going to make a bunch of tweaks and polishes and mix everything. All right, and I have a finished song. It's not super sonic-y, but uh, I like it. It's, it's pretty simple. I think it turned out pretty good. I'm going to call this Reflecting Reef Zone. Enjoy. was fun. <laughs> that was a blast for me. It was a little bit nerve-wracking and awkward at first, I gotta say. I haven't really done that before, you know. Realize I've recorded myself in so many ways, but not, not you know, literally coming up with No, I gotta say, I really appreciate the vulnerability. I mean, it is a vulnerable thing to show your process. I think most yeah. composers are really private. But honestly, I think stuff like this is so important to sort of demystify music a, a little bit. A little I hope bit. people enjoyed it. I hope it was helpful and enjoyable. Yeah, I will. I just want to say one more time is that this was a very, very fast kind of, and I had those fast forward sound effects, but yeah, it was like, it was fast forwarding through the the process of composing. I'll, typically, I'm going to take a lot longer as Will, I'm sure, realizes, you know, typically the stuff takes longer. But yeah, I was just trying to go with my guts. Um, yeah, but, no, uh, and I mean, I think sense. Um, what was cool about this is this really does represent enough of the process. I mean, obviously we could do yeah. something like this for, you know, two hours or five hours or multiple days <laughs> if that's what it yeah. takes. But I think fundamentally creating a chip tune like this is something that it's, it's composed of simple elements, but it's the good kind of simple. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, showing to people how you can kind of craft a melody and start with sort of a rough idea and try to refine it. And you're, you're thinking about the shape and you're thinking about, it's like, 
you don't want it too symmetrical because it goes like this the first time, but then you want it to go down the second time. And it's like, yeah, ultimately we all make different decisions. You know, I would have written a different melody. I would have come up mm-hmm. with different chords. I probably would have done things in a different order, but that's, what's amazing is because when you're done with it, you hear a Carl Brueggemann tune and that's what I love. One of the things we want to do on the second composer tips episode is do something kind of like that, but together yeah, to do kind of some sort of collaboration where we send it back and forth that's going to be really cool and also just to sort of document the way that carl and i have composed Mm -hmm. for so many projects that we've worked on and to sort of showcase that process a little bit i hope that this episode did not feel too self-aggrandizing or trying to make things about us or anything like that again this is only our own subjective opinions and experiences because i know that we do have a lot of listeners so many of you reach out to us and say how you want to write for games and even if it's not something you're pursuing professionally so many of you i know for a fact are excellent composers yeah and and i really just hope that at the end of the day you enjoyed this whether or not you learned something from it maybe you just got a kick out of how Everyone approaches things differently. I'm also, I just want to give one more shout out. Thanks so much to Tyler for that chat. What a perfect intermission chat that was to hear his different and unique insight. And Will, I didn't get to say coming out of your segment, but thank you so much for your segment. Such a nice theoretical educational look at Melody. That was really cool. I'm really excited about this episode. I think it was a great time. Yeah, I I had so much fun. And, you know, uh, one thing that we want to do is we want to encourage all of you to continue this conversation and continue uh, in the spirit of composer tips over on our Discord. Yes. Uh, I know because we have so many people on our Discord that are composers, I imagine a lot of you have your own tips and things that you've learned over the years. Yes, I look forward to continuing the conversation over there. And also I look forward to next time we do a composer tip to maybe feature some of those ideas and some of those voices on that episode. So yeah, what a fun time this was. Totally. Yeah, we had to get the ball rolling with our own stuff. And I definitely want to bring Marty in on some of this because I'm sure he could do multiple episodes by himself with his hands tied behind his back. But it'll be fun. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this very unique episode. It was a lot of fun to put together. I just wanted to plug uh, that I have an exciting album that is coming out on May Friday, May 6th. It's called Dreams Aligned, and it is a really big... It's two hours. It's 49 tracks, two hours. It's an original SNES soundtrack. My idea with this was, what if I made a score and came up with a world and lore and characters first... And then had the goal of one day actually having the game be made. But uh, for now, it's just an imaginary game. So that was kind of my idea. Really excited to share with everybody. That's awesome, dude. I'm really excited. I love how I've noticed this trend with your recent albums. And it's, you know, it somewhat includes Hero of Legend and some of our collaborative Mercado Mm -hmm. albums. But I love this trend in your work of getting a little bit more... I guess I want to say like theatrical about having (laughs) these narrative elements and storytelling. I mean, not to give away anything, but there is a twist in Sonic-esque Flashfield (laughs) that is really cool for the medium of an album of music to have this kind of narrative structure to it. And I think thinking of it as video game music helps to put it in context of you're not just listening to music by itself. You're listening to music that's meant to take you to this world, partially a nostalgic place because of Super Nintendo sounds, but also this 
entirely new kind of fantasy world that you've created yourself. Yeah, and I think by the time you're listening to it, um, there's a couple things that I'm sharing before the album comes out. One is a Google Doc that has the full track list with full descriptions of every single track. I wanted to share that earlier so that people can already get a little bit of context, already get a little bit of this imagination going on so that when they hear the music, it feels more more impactful. Also, a map. I made an entire map of this world that I'll be sharing at time of recording in, in a few days. And so look forward to some of that fun stuff to go along with the music. I think that's about it. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We've gotten some really great, positive, it seems like, uh, feedback and reception to our recent episodes and sort of the structure. Um, So we're going to continue to try to give you guys a variety of things. One thing we want to reassure to anyone where this episode is not necessarily your cup of tea, because maybe you just come to our podcast for great playlists of video game music. And why shouldn't you? (laughs) Fear not. uh, We will be back to that format very regularly, and that will still be the main core of this podcast. We just also, as a service to our listeners, like to try new things out every once in a while. Well, thanks, everyone. We love y'all. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. Part of the Mercado Brothers Podcast Network.